0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1860, the Proceedings of the Institution of Civil Engineers printed an obituary of his Kingdom Brunel. Quote, The characteristic feature of his works, it said was their size. But, quote, his besetting fault was a seeking for novelty where the adoption of a well-known model would have sufficed. Today, Brunel is remembered as one of the towering figures of the early Victorian age of steam, an age when engineers strove to establish themselves as respectable members of the professional class. Brunel designed and built ships, bridges, tunnels and railways, many of which are still in use today, more than 150 years after they were opened. He is commemorated in numerous museums and statues, and a as the name of a university, and his reputation has never been higher. But the patchy opinion of some of his contemporaries suggests a more complicated story. With me to discuss his and Kingdom Brunel are Crosby Smith, Professor of the History of Science at the University of Kent, Julia Elton, Historian of Engineering and former President of the Newcomen Society for the History of Engineering and Technology, and Ben Marson, Senior Lecturer in the School of Divinity, History and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. Crosby Smith, Isambard was the son of an engineer, Mark Brunel. Can you tell us something about him?
0: Yes, the Brunels were originally a farming family from near Rouen in Normandy. Um, And Mark uh, was originally intended for the priesthood. But at an early age, he showed an aptitude for mechanical and mathematical studies and Uh, went to Rouen where he studied hydrography, that is the charting and surveying of coastlines and and seas. In 1786, he joined the French Navy um, where he served mainly in the West Indies for about six years. And he returned to France um, in 1792, uh, just at the time the Revolutionary Terror was at, at its height, at its peak, And for someone with royalist sympathies, um, this was not good. He, meanwhile, met Sophia Kingdom, who was over from England, despite the revolution, to improve her, uh, her French and her wider education. And due to the, mainly to the revolution, Brunel managed to get a passage to New York. So essentially he became what we might call an asylum seeker.
2: So he went to New York, then he came back to Britain. But in this time, he was developing as an inventor.
0: He was. In North America, especially, he set about surveying canal routes, uh, involved himself in construction projects. Um, And while there, he was introduced to Britain's first Lord of the Admiralty, um, the second Earl Spencer, around 1798, who became his key patron. And that really opened the way for him to return to Britain in 1799, where, within a very short time, he married Sophia. Um, His most memorable um, achievement in Britain during this period was in the mass production of rigging blocks for the Royal Navy, something that was um, previously done by craftsmen, and now it was done by machinery. So in the period of the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, um, Mark Brunel obviously had a very was recognised as a very central figure in in a, in Portsmouth Dockyard, and it was there in April 1806 that Isambard Kingdom was born. He was born in Portsmouth. How did, briefly, how did he educate his son? Well, most of Isambard's early education was mathematics, um, arithmetic, geometry, drawing, uh, taught largely by his father. And then he moved to private schools in Chelsea, in Hove, where he widened his education, as it were, the making of the gentleman in terms of some Latin, some Greek and modern languages. But it was essentially Mark who encouraged his son to draw and, and came up with this phrase about the engineer's alphabet of measuring and observing any building of interest with neat, neat precision, was Mark's phrase. And then he went to France and studied
2: mathematics because he thought that mathematical education was in advance of... In, in France, it was in advance of what it was in England, but came back to, to to this country, Julia Eldon. And his career really began in the 1820s with his father.
1: Yes, he came back from France in 1822 after his father had been released from debtor's prison. And Why was he, he in w- debtor's prison? Mark Brunel was horrified when he saw the state of the feet of the people returning from the war in France. And he, in fact, patented a way of mass-producing Wellington boots for which he wasn't paid by the government. And there were various other things. I think he was not a very good businessman, though he was a very brilliant inventor. So he was, like many people of his time, thrown into debtors' prison. I think it was quite a common fate for lots of perfectly good middle-class people.
2: Was there such a thing as the state of engineering at that time in this country?
1: Oh, yes. And
2: what was the state? What state was it in?
1: Well, there'd been a lot of work on building canals. In fact, there had been a canal mania. There was a lot of work on building roads. Telford, who was the sort of great dominating figure of the early 19th century, um, was responsible for building the Holyhead Road, which was the Irish Mail Road, And he also opened up the Highlands, building great roads there. Huge road-building programme. And then, of course, as James McAdam, who was the son of the famous McAdam, said in the 1820s, and then came the disaster of the railways. And the roads then managed, were sort of obliterated in the the public by the fact that this brand-new infrastructure system came along.
2: How are these projects, road and then rail, how are they funded?
1: they were it was all privately funded it was all share capital and it was quite complicated and expensive to get your private bill into parliament you had a promotional committee and you rushed round and you interviewed all the local landowners and all the people who might be expected to feel that they might benefit financially from your proposed railway. You had to hire an ad- a parliamentary agent, bankers, solicitors. You, in fact, had to employ a surveyor and an engineer and open a subscription list for shares because you had to have quite a lot of the capital before you actually took your scheme to Parliament.
2: Did this compare... Uh, Badly with, uh, say, France and Belgium? Because they were organised from the centre, weren't they?
1: They were organised from the centre. I think it depends if you're thinking heroism or if you're thinking state control. The fact is, Britain did it privately and so it was a complete free-for-all, which, in a sense, with Dr Beeching's rationalisation of the system in the 1860s, a lot of that needed to be done... Because if you were a landowner and you had the money and you could get yourself together, you could get a railway anywhere you wanted. So not planning it centrally was later on a big disadvantage. But as I say, people nowadays prefer the the heroic approach rather than the state controlled approach.
2: Ben Marsden, can we talk about the status of engineers in British site in the early. 19th century and how this affected the way they went about their work
3: Yeah, I think people sometimes are confused when they hear the term civil engineer and they associate it with craft based activity and they assume that it's more like a low status artisanal activity but one of the things that really characterises civil engineers in this period that we're talking about is the desire to enhance their status and to distinguish themselves from these lower status, uns- relatively unskilled activities. Why did
2: they want to do that? Because, because of the British class system at the time?
3: I suppose that if you wanted to see who were, the, who were the individuals that had high status at this time, well, there'd be perhaps lawyers, other kinds of professionals, physicians rather than surgeons cultural figures of various kinds obviously at the aristocracy and that kind of thing so there's a a lot of competition if you like from within the engineering community to try to build an image of themselves, build build their status in, in various different ways so the idea of the civil engineer is a relatively recent invention at this stage you've had military engineers obviously those working to produce bridges, roads, etc. in a military context. But then you have the civil engineers who are defined deliberately in opposition to those, especially through figures like John Smeaton. And Smeaton wanted to engage in public works, but also to, to some extent, scientise how engineering worked. So he tried to do experiments, he tried to work with models etc and make engineering look scientific because a good way of enhancing status was to associate himself with science another uh, important issue was the, the question of whether engineers should be in some sense learned because the classic professions of uh, doctors, uh, lawyers and um, uh, the clergy all to some extent had some form of training, so that meant going through the academy and perhaps having a kind of literary dimension to their practice. So there was a question of whether civil engineers were going to do this, and this was re- a real tension, I think, for engineers right the way through this period. They wanted to appear learned, so for example, some young engineers in 1818 set up the Institution of Civil Engineers, which was, in a way, a repository for libraries, models, etc. And it was supposed to instantiate that connection with scientific activity, which had been important for Smeaton and these new young engineers. But part of that was a reaction to um, an idea of engineering status which was more to do with family, to do with patronage, more kind of, if we could say, ancien régime.
2: How was how did this social position of engineers reflect the way that Brunel, to come now to Brunel, conducted his uh, his affairs? After so we, we know that he started with his father, but we can come back to that in a second. Generally speaking, how did this affect the way he conducted his uh, business?
3: So I think it's possible to see Brunel in his early life, if you think he was born in 1806, so and back in England in the 1820s, as almost experimenting with these different forms of status. Um, so family he's the son of an eminent and well-connected engineer, uh, science. Um, he, In his early days, in, in, in 1830, 1831, he actually writes a treatise, a scientific treatise, institutions. He's a very keen member of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Uh, he's a member of the Royal Society of London, which is the premier scientific society of its, of its time. He joins the Athenaeum Club as well. And through these clubs, institutions, he has access to their, their literary dimension, if you like, the, the, the books, uh, the uh, pamphlets, the newspapers, etc., which are really integral part of, of uh, engineering practice at that time. So, to some extent, it's not just through producing works that he's attempting to enha- enhance his own status as, as an engineer. To some extent, he's almost under the shadow of, of his father, who has the higher profile... Um, There's a lovely example of this where he writes in about 1830 to a man called Thomas Coates, associated with the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, and says, from now on, I shall be signing myself I.K. Brunel because my father signs himself I. Brunel, although we tend to call him Mark. He actually called himself Isambard Brunel. So he's trying to, as it were, escape from the shadow, if you like, of his father as the the truly eminent engineer. So all of these things... uh, the the science, the family, the institutional activity, are ways in which he's exploring the possibility of enhancing his own status.
2: On the other hand, working with his father, Crosby Smith, was quite a useful way to start a career (laughs) And, and the first big project he worked on in the mid 1820s was the Thames Tunnel which uh, to go? I think supposed to be the first attempt to go under a river, and they discovered that it was extraordinarily tricky because of the ground they found under the water. But he worked on that with his father. Can you give us some idea of how that proceeded?
0: He did indeed, and it exemplifies very well what Ben has been saying about engineers more broadly. Um, Isambard basically cut his teeth on the Thames Tunnel project. He started as assistant to his father. Um, He took over as resident engineer in the mid-1820s. Mark Brunel um, became somewhat unwell, so um, Isambard took on an increasingly important role. What was the big problem? Threefold. um, Poor ventilation as the tunnel lengthened under the Thames. Um, The geological uh, structure of the, the riverbed which uh turned out to be a kind of gravel and sand rather than clay which made the tunneling exceptionally dangerous um and the other problems were financial because it wasn't obvious that uh, this project was going to go anywhere especially after the rate of tunneling uh was shown to be really quite slow something like 2 to 3 feet per day per week or per month even in some cases um so
2: And Mark had to build a special thing, machine, you tell me what it is, to protect the workers so that there wasn't flooding all the time in these exceptionally, as you say, dangerous conditions, in which Brunel made his first entrance onto the public stage by, back to your word, by heroically rescuing a lot of uh, workers who were trapped in this flood, and that got him national prominence as this dashing, young, brave person.
0: Mark's device was known as the Great Shield, um, which was supposed to be based on uh, the shipworm, the the teredo navalis, in terms of its capacity to burrow into stout timbers and uh, prevent any roof falls behind it. Um, The shield was uh, a cast iron rectangle in in the form that was used on the tunnel and it was divided into 36 cells, each with uh, a miner, with a workman um, digging away at the face of the the clay or the, the, the gravel.
3: Um, like and the night
0: whole night. structure would then be jacked forward um, <laughs> at a rate
3: of so many feet per, um, per month or per week. You want to come in? Just a comment on that, which is that another interesting thing about this was the fact that it was like a tourist attraction. Um, and it just really dramatises the fact that engineers, whilst at one level desperate to get on and finish their projects, also needed to keep publics on side, And they also needed to find ways of making money at times when these projects were paused. So the, tu- the, t- the Thames Tunnel, you know, you could buy panoramas, you could buy mugs, you could buy a newspaper kind of thing. There were brass band con- concerts, etc. It was a tremendous place to have some fun, and Has been described as one of the main tourist attractions of London of that period.
2: Can we? He
3: moved to Bristol,
2: and so must we. And he worked on the. Uh, he was one of the people who put in, in for his next project in eighteen twenty nine for what would they hope to be the Clifton Suspension Bridge? What happened there, Julia Elton?
1: Well, the money had been given by an eighteenth century Bristol merchant on the theory that one of, the, one of these days the interest would make it big enough to build the bridge. And in eighteen twenty nine ish, it was deemed that the time was now right to do it. And there was indeed a competition in eighteen twenty nine, and various people put in, including I. K. Brunel, who was in fact convalescing in Bristol from an accident he'd had on the tunnel. And because he was he was bright and sparky, he also was tremendously excited by the dramatic Um, landscape qualities of the Clifton Gorge and he put in several designs with very long spans and the big problem is that Thomas Telford who is by this time the grand old man of engineering in fact was buried in Westminster Abbey he was so grand eventually he comes in and he says no 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 I have built the great Menai suspension bridge It's got a span of 570-odd feet, and this is the longest span that is achievable. And so all the competition designs for spans that were well over um, his specified span length... They all had to be thrown out, and they then asked Telford to design his own bridge, which was idiotic, with enormous towers rising 200 feet from the Floor Valley. And so they then managed to sideline Telford. I'm never quite certain how. And they had a second competition. But they had to compromise with Telford who was, as I say, the grand old man, and Brunel was the young whippersnapper. And so it was decided that they had to reduce the span, and they built that enormous abutment on the leeward side to reduce the span. That's where all the money went. So that Brunel's design, which actually watch, would have been wonderful, at least in the sort of, um, from the point of view of the p- architecture of the piers, in fact, they managed to get as far as building the two masonry piers, and then the money ran out.
0: There's a well-documented example of Brunel's showmanship uh, at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in Bristol in 1836 when the assembled dignitaries um, uh, meet for the, um, as it were, the consecration of of the bridge, even though though it's not complete. And Brunel uh, attempts to um, install a a 1,000-foot Iron bar from one of one side of the gorge to the other, but it unfortunately, at the ca- well unfortunately the cable snaps and it plunges to the River Avon beneath. But Brunel manages to have it all back in place for the ceremony the next morning, um, and of course the whole thing is staged rather like a religious ceremony. So I think this is just one example of Brunel's ability to 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 play to the the investing public to those who mattered. Van
2: Marsden, his next big commission in 1833 was the Great Western Railway, so he's still aiming towards Bristol from London. Can you tell us about that, how that uh, how that was commissioned?
3: That's right. So he has uh, great connections with Bristol alre- already by this stage, or the Bristol area, through the Clinton Suspension Bridge project. And I think part of this is a recognition that by 1830 you have the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, which is connecting the Liverpool port with the Manchester... Markets, but also areas of, of production uh, manufacture, um, Bristol is perhaps in danger uh, of being sidelined as a port if it doesn 't create good connections with the hinterland and then back obviously to london so um, there 's enthusiasm uh, for creating a, as it were parallel radio in this co- uh, re- railway, I should say um, in this first uh, part of the of the passenger railway age um, so Brunel is then made. Um, engineer, first surveyor in 1833, March 1833, and then later uh, engineer for this railway. And um, his idea curiously is not simply to follow what's been already proposed by George and Robert Stevenson in the Liverpool and Manchester and other railways in the north of England. Instead what he does is he says, I'm going to start again from scratch think in terms of first principles which essentially are scientific principles as far as he's concerned and reinvent a new railway system. Um and as part of that he creates his own what's called the broad gauge, which is the distance between the tracks. He creates his own locomotives which are very, very large. Um, he has this idea that he's going to produce a railway which is a part of a complete package. Um, rapid travel, eventually from London to Bristol, an incredibly good gradient. So instead of having slopes and reducing speed very very quick, and and luxury. So his intended passengers are very much the upper class p- individuals who he would thinks will want to move quickly from London to Bristol, essentially to read to work, almost like the HS2 that's being proposed at the moment.
2: And they start and they start and end in two great projects of sort of industrial palaces, Paddington and Temple Meads. So he, he's got that going as well. What. Crippled it. What was the thing that made it very difficult to do? So one of the it one, was the gauges, was it?
3: What, the, 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 there are many controversial things about it. We can't have time for many. Can you give us two <laughs> or three of the key ones? Okay, so um, <laughs> using a broad gauge instead of the existing standard gauge, seven feet and seven instead of four foot eight and a half inches was problematic. Crosby, can you take this up now?
0: Yes, I think the there were many critics of the Great Western Railway as well as as well as many supporters I mean the, the investors in Bristol were generally very loyal to to Brunel but uh, one of them um, <clears throat> noted um, that in, in private that there have been too many mistakes too much of doing and too much of undoing and I think that was one of Brunel's characteristic flaws in the eyes of particularly investors not being very careful with their uh, capital. Um, Brunel um, because he chose to do things experimentally or uh, was deemed to be experimental um, that didn't guarantee uh, success according to tried and tested methods and that was one of the, the criticisms that would be later labelled against his, um, his, his design of steamships the So how did it specifically run into trouble and what was the, what was the nature of that trouble? Well the the Great Western Railway I think overall was was profitable. Um so I think the the investors got a as it were a, f- a fair share of the of the success of the railway in in their eyes. The problem really as as usually conceived by historians is uh, it matching other or or not being a uniform gauge with the national with any kind of uh, attempt to provide a national rail network. And one of the arguments, a kind of quasi-social political argument, was that um, it was essentially an elite railway, as as Ben mentioned. Uh, It it was very much, uh, one critic called it the gentleman's wide gauge. It it didn't, as it were, cater for the travelling masses, for example, in the same way that the northern, northwestern railways catered.
3: you want to come back for a moment, Ben? I think we have to recognise as well that Brunel at this stage was really relatively untri- untried as a railway engineer and there are heavy criticisms from a group of um, shareholders, uh, directors from the north of England who are saying who is this man, You know, why are we trying these innovations, so there, uh, Brunel is for example uh, compared to Don Quixote as a kind of Um, crazy uh, engineering knight-errant tilting at windmills with with wild projects, etc. It's only really because of support from the scientific community and on a very narrow vote that he's allowed to continue to actually construct the railway in the late 1830s. Well, I think one one of the problems
1: was, was that actually he was really not a very good mechanical engineer and he wanted of course to do everything himself unlike Robert Stevenson who was actually a very good delegator. He wanted to do everything himself, and so the line was opened and actually, the locomotives he designed were a terrible mess, and there were howls of complaints they didn 't work it was the line was very, it was very uncomfortable and there was, he did offer to resign, and there was a moment when that was clearly going to was clearly a possibility and actually, the great Western Board called in Sir John Hawkshaw and Nicholas Wood. And they, who were heavyweights, said that actually Brunel was absolutely the person to finish the line, but that actually the locomotive design should be taken out of his hands. And they therefore employed Daniel Gooch, who was trained in the Stevenson School of Locomotive Engineering. I will say for Brunel, he was a big enough figure. He liked everybody to answer to him. But in this instance, Gooch answered to the board and Brunel was big enough to take that... On, and the locomotive, t- the, lo- the Great Western locomotive story turned into a huge success because of Gooch.
2: And Brunel's push west continues when he goes into ships and uh, we have the first Great Western, which is to go from Bristol to America, and he plunges into shipbuilding. How does he do that, Julia Elton? Again, we must uh, sort of say, take it for granted, that everything he does is the biggest that's been done at the time or the biggest that's ever been done. This is the biggest ship, steamship, and away he goes.
1: Yes, I think you could say that. That's not necessarily good engineering, of course, but in no, the ships...
2: That's what was going on. It
1: was, the, I mean, the ships, I think, were a very remarkable part of his career, I think more remarkable in some ways than the railways because other people were just as brilliant, if not more so. The ships, I think, are very unusual... There was an anomaly in those days about getting ships across 3,000 miles of water. They, in fact, felt that if you made a ship that was big enough, the resistance to the wood would go up in the same proportion, and that therefore you would have to have such impossible amounts of fuel to get it across, that it was impossible and actually, of course that isn't so, because resistance doesn't, of course, go up in the same proportion as the size of the hull. This is a very unscientific way of putting it. But he managed... That was an anomaly. And he saw, he saw how silly it was. And, of course, the ship was in competition with Sirius and arrived in New York, and she still had, I think, 200 tonnes of fuel left, and Sirius was down to its last 12 tonnes... Crosby, I'm sure knows far far more about this than I do.
0: Crosby, well, it was uh, the 18th, late 1830s was a a, an, a period of great um, competition to try to be the first to cross the Atlantic with a regular steamship service, and there had been a um, an American domiciled in in London, Junius Smith, who attempted to float a, a, an enormous company with some eight steamships and capital of over a million pounds in the 1830s, which prompted, that really prompted Brunel, his competitive instincts, to to do the same, to extend, as it were, the Great Western Railway westwards across the Atlantic. So he wasn't the first to conceive the idea of a transatlantic steamship service of this kind, Um, but the Great Western was was very nearly the, the first steamship, a wooden paddle steamer, Pretty much the largest steamer afloat at that time, and in many ways the the, the most successful of his three famous steamships. Um, what he, where he, as it were, in the eyes of some critics, where he went wrong was to build the Great Britain, which was three thousand tons instead of fourteen hundred tons or thereabouts. It took five years to get to the floating out stage in Bristol, and then another year to complete by which time um, he had really exhausted the patience of his investors. And the Great Britain only made a small number of transatlantic crossings before grounding on the coast of County Down and bankrupting the Great Western Steamship Company. So if he'd built, you could say with the benefit of hindsight, if he'd built more Great Westerns, uh, he might have become, instead of the Cunard line of the Atlantic, it would have been the Great Western Steamship Company of the Atlantic. Julia?
1: Um, On the other hand, I mean, the SS Great Britain is really the first modern ship. It's it's completely an iron. It's screw-propelled, not paddle-wheeled, like the SS Great Western. And I think, to some extent... It wasn't entirely his fault. That running aground in Dundrum Bay, it was always said, was actually the drunken captain. I mean, I don't see how Brunel could be held responsible for the fact that it ran aground and it took months to get her off, and he designed the cradle that did, in fact, get her off. But it did spell the end for the the company. Well,
0: the, the, the contemporary criticisms ranged from building an iron ship which deranged the magnetic compasses, which was one of the arguments for the grounding, Um, that the screw propeller was a much too experimental arrangement. Uh, For example, the tips of the propeller kept falling off and several of the transatlantic voyages were conducted under sail alone at the end because the propeller was simply thumping away there and not actually doing anything. So it is particularly ironic that um, after salvage of the vessel, uh, she became an auxiliary steamer running to Australia with... um, Emigrants, uh, and then, at the end of her career, her sailing career, she was a pure sailing ship. so uh, the passengers often noted in their letters to the captain afterwards that the ship sailed extremely well <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what What do you make of his venture into these iron ships? What do you make of it uh, Ben
3: um, I think this is another one of those things where if you go back to his really early life and you see this incredible set of aspirations that he has, which he talks about privately, he wants to make a name for himself. It's very, very clear, even from his almost as soon as he's into his teens that he's trying to do that. One way of doing that is the railways but it's like that's not enough. So with the exploration into the Great Western he sees that as this huge systematic extension of the Great Western Railway across the Atlantic kind of thing.
2: There's a double thing in this though because he has to make it very appealing to get the money and he has to go out and himself appeal for this private money so if he's a figure in the in the city or a figure in the, in the in, in industrial or cultural landscape they're saying oh we like that chap, we've met him. Him. He's very, he's very clever indeed. So we'll give him some of our money. He, he, that was partly he had to do that. He he's a charming individual. Yes, in some ways, up, yes, but he was not, drumming
3: up investors, wasn't it? Not he? with contractors and not with assistants. But I think he has cultural charms. He has cultural attributes and skills. He can talk. He can, you know, he's he's, he's a gentleman. I suppose he has gentility, and that's something that that allows him to. Uh, well the public etc but I think there's possibly something else going on which is that in an environment where yes there's a, certainly a huge amount of innovation um, it, there's also a lot of caution um, so there's probably space in that kind of environment for one individual to play up his personal innovative brand if you like and I, I think that's possibly that something something that Brunel is deliberately going for I'm not just as Crosby says going to repeat the Great Western I'm going to do something wildly different
2: Crosby, then. Now, well, Julia's ready right to come in.
0: Well, I think increasingly in his career, um, as the ships get bigger, and we'll see this with the the Great Eastern. Um, he's he's playing not just to, uh, as it were, tried and tested investors like uh, the the, uh, the merchants of Bristol, but it's it's an age of speculation, um, and the great we- the Great Eastern Steamship Company, the third project in in maritime history for Brunel. Um, he uh, the, the ship is initially uh, costed at around a quarter of a million pounds. The aim was to build two of these ships to run without refueling to either to Australia or to India, or, or both. And there was talk that the dividends for the investors would be some 40%. So he was offering them a good
2: deal. If it was a account. real
0: carrot, <laughs> a real carrot, such as we would rarely see
2: today. And he, But he was constantly trying new things, Julia Elton. What about this atmospheric railway that he had it, a hand in? Well, you in? could
1: argue that actually one should draw a veil over the atmospheric railway because, um, I mean, it was an absolute disastrous failure. He, It was a system in which you used a tube and you exhausted the tube in front of the carriage's which sat on a sort of piston, and so they just shot forward by atmospheric pressure, and you exhausted the tube by a series of stationary steam engines, um, at every anyway at a few mile intervals. It had been tried quite successfully on the Dalkey expense extension to the to the um, Dublin and Kingstown railway, but that line was only a mile and three quarters or two. And it had also been tried on the London and Croydon Railway as an auxiliary to the locomotive running. And that was, ooh, three miles, whatever is London to Croydon, not all that much. Brunel was proposing to use a single line of tube over a main line from Exeter to Plymouth, 52 miles. So, you know, you went from a small, relatively experimental thing to this enormous... My um, dear, in fact, he completely overreached himself, and it was a disaster. It all had to be taken up. He refused any fees for it.
2: Well, that's that's bold. Isn't yeah, it? no, no. Yeah. I mean,
1: he was a perfectly moral man.
2: Yeah. Brunel kept two diaries: Ben uh, Martin, the public, and the private. Can you briefly tell us what we get out of
3: them? Yeah, so these diaries are incredible documents. Although we don't tend to think of engineers as being literary figures or sort of authors or writers, um, it was actually very common for engineers to keep diaries at this period. Uh, Mark Brunel had suggested that keeping a diary for an engineer was a professional duty, so he encouraged his son, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, to do the same. So there are two diaries, the private diary, the personal diary. The private diary is like a record of day-to-day events associated with um, the engineer's work with his employer maybe the source of a report data to directors etc the personal diaries are, are the really revelatory ones because these are the ones that show us really what Brunel was feeling. So can you
2: give us a few instances from that? Well when
3: he talks where he talks about his castles in the air, his chateau de Spagna, as he calls them uh, he, he relates an anecdote at some point where he was riding along a track on his little pony as he called it and he felt himself pulling himself up to look taller so that he could make a better impression on those who were walking beside him um, it's in those diaries that he talks about his aspirations his desire to be the first engineer of his own time and all so the exemplar for all future engineers.
2: What, uh, helpfully, can we tell about Brunel's character from what's known about the rest of his life when he wasn't building bridges and tunnels and ships and railways? Julia?
1: Well, actually, that's mostly what he did. He must have had
2: some time off.
1: He had very little time off. I mean, in the early days, he married his wife was a member of the Horsley family, and they were very cultivated. John Horsley was a composer, they knew Mendelssohn. He moved in that milieu. But actually, if you look at his workload, um, in the summer of 1843, he was almost not at home at all. He was working 18-hour days. And actually, um, it was felt that his wife was a sort of trophy wife. He was practically never at home. And... They were all like that. I mean, the eyes of the of the public were on them. The, the, the society was looking to these great engineers to provide this new infrastructure. And actually, there is none of them had very much time to do anything apart from work.
3: And you might qualify that a little. I think the interesting thing is, in a way, being at home was being at work because yes. the office was actually in the same premises on Duke Street in, uh, in London, near to the Houses of Parliament, where most engineers actually lived at that stage. Um, there's a lovely example of Brunel's interest in um, art, literature, etc., and some of his kind of ability to ent- entertain guests and that kind of thing. So um, in 1847, he decided that he was going to become a patron of art, and he set up um, a series of commissions to ask uh, modern British artists to illustrate the works of Shakespeare. The artists got to choose the works, but they had to be uh, currently performed and they had to be popular. But after that, it was up to them. So Edwin Landseer was one of them. His uh, brother-in-law, John Horsley, who Julia's just mentioned, was another... John Horsley illustrated a scene from Romeo and Juliet, Landseer, I think it was A Midsummer Night's Dream. So imagine the dining room, actually rather close to Brunel's office, decorated with these wonderful images from Shakespeare. And Brunel was hoping that from this he would create a commission that would be something that he could give after his death to the nation. In fact, he was slightly disappointed with the results. And also, actually, the family, after he died, was so short of cash that they seem to have decided to sell uh, most of these uh, assets.
1: Yes, because I will say for Brunel, he certainly put his money where his mouth was, so that he in fact invested in the atmospheric railway, but he also invested disastrously in the Great Eastern rail, in the Great Eastern steamship, and when he died, they were desperately short of cash. But actually, I mean, I think I would equally say, I mean, Robert Stevenson was also commissioning pictures and buying works of art, as indeed for some of the great contractors, because basically they'd made it. And that's what you did. I mean, it's like nowadays. I mean, they start from fairly, in Stevenson's case, fairly modest backgrounds, and they they really make it. And this is one of the great symbols. You become a patron of art.
2: Crosby, how would you characterize Brunel's reputation in his lifetime?
0: I think the examples of Paddington Station, um, the... Uh, Great Western Railway as a whole the bridges with which he was associated particularly the the Saltash Bridge over the Tamar um, Maidenhead Bridge those were regarded with great admiration by wide sections of the public but we always come back to the the question of of confidence um, in terms of the the travelling public doubtless had great confidence in if i mean provided they could afford it to travel on the great western railway but for example the figures of passenger numbers on his transatlantic steamships uh, tell an interesting story in that following any mishap however minor um on the great britain and uh, also on the great eastern the passenger numbers tend to plummet so you get a, a, an idea that in terms of the traveling public Um, Brunel's um, artefacts were treated with some caution and uh, there were comparatively few monuments and memorials to Brunel um, after his death in the 19th century but in the 20th century, I guess post-1960s, there is a great revival in things Victorian and it coincides for example with the the salvage and restoration of the Great Britain in Bristol, along with um, Bristol as it were rediscovering its its heroic past and its its great engineer, and I think there is that uh, attempt uh, in a post-industrial age, in an age of heritage, to look to heroes, to a, a genius, uh, a genius of invention and of engineering.
2: I'm afraid that's all we have time for. So thanks very much to Julia Elton, Crosby Smith and Ben Marsden. And next week we'll be talking about Aesop. Thanks for listening.
3: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Yes, uh, but he did have this celebrity status. So this famous mm. example is one of the ones that Crosby didn't talk about where um, he's doing a conjuring trick and he chokes on a coin... And it's a it's a national news, which is is Mister mm. Brunel going to die? And then Actually, he develops this. Actually,
1: it's not national news. Well, he, there's somebody rushed down the street to the Athenaeum where he knew everybody, <laughs> saying, "It's out, it's out, it's out," <laughs>
3: and course. everybody knew because of he's, course you know he's supposed to have developed this apparatus which allowed him to be spun round mm, so that the right. thing could be dislodged, and mm. then um, submitted a description of the apparatus and an authorised account to the Times. So in that sense, he did have some kind of celebrity status. Yes, but, but if you but look at if you look at what people were saying just at the point when he died, then you know, monuments to his vanity. Mm. I mean, th- this is how many of these uh, events... Are you seem to resist despite,
2: that. You? you seem to resist him, ha- Julia, having any sort of uh, recognition, ha- rec- high recognition... At the reason I
1: resisted is that the Brunel industry and the Brunel worship has completely distorted <clears throat> an overall picture And actually, if you're ever going to do another engineer, you really should do Robert Stevenson, who is a very interesting foil to Brunel and was just as celebrated in his own time, if not more so. The problem with Robert Stevenson is that he had no family his white young wife died, there are no papers, mm. there are no diaries, there are no drawings, there is no descending family to yeah. go on worshipping their ancestor, which the Brunells have certainly done.
3: Well, the, that's and, the same with James Watt. So like and James it's the same Jr. with James just Watt. Cons- reconstructed the image of James yeah. Watt yeah. Sr., who's and, a better-known figure. And, of
1: course, the other thing are those photographs. In mm. a world in which we worship celebrity, those photographs are so sexy. <laughs> I mean, they are those of, of him swaggering in front of the Great Eastern, and actually, I think, and the thing, the thing that makes that I think is really interesting, is in an age in which we are so risk averse, we actually yeah. worship an engineer who is far more prone to take risks even than his contemporaries. That I think is really interesting. So what I'm, cons- I've, I mean, I go on being concerned to do, is in fact pull together. He, in the context of his contemporaries, mm. and what did everybody else do? He was, in his own time, not considered to be the greatest Robert Stevenson he, was. He wasn't
3: the one that got and the night and that's the point, isn't it? Mm.
2: Sorry. Sorry. Thank you very much. No,
1: no, thank, thank you. you thank very you, much. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.